0: So, we're on part two of a four-part series, actually five, including the interview I have with Tessie, and um, talking to a gentleman from Death Row, calling in from Death Row, about their experience and writing, and in particularly writing the book Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, with Tessie Castillo. I think you'll find the conversation very interesting, and taking a glimpse or a peek behind the scenes of what their lives are like and how writing this book has been very transformative and reflective for these gentlemen. So without further ado, the next interview is with Shanton and I think you guys are going to gain quite a bit from listening to this. So check out my conversation with Shanton
1: Hey Chanton. Hi, Casey. Hi, Walker.
0: Hey, how are you, Chanton? Thank you for spending time with me today. Appreciate it. Sure, anytime, anytime, anything. Well, I'm grateful for the time and that I get to speak with you. And I would, I would love to hear about your journey in writing this very powerful book with Tessie. Your experience and getting started with it, and how that. This process has kind of molded and changed you.
1: Okay, so um, my first few years here on death row was like really spent idly. I guess that's like the gears of prison, like other population and other um, the environment, prison environment. They have they have vocational vocational classes and recreational classes and those type of things where death row didn't have those things. There were no jobs, there were no classes and so for sixteen there were there weren't even phones. For mm. sixteen years it was just this like um this real monotonous idle days and nights spent just kind of thinking and wondering about the situation and the and the the circumstance. But then in two thousand sixteen there was this idea to introduced classes on death row because there was a a situation where guys were getting off death row, and they were products of this years of idleness. And so with that, they introduced these classes. They started with a pilot class. Um, It was successful, extremely successful. And then we introduced other classes. One of those classes was a journalism class. And I was always excited about writing. I never knew the structuring side of writing, so I signed up along with some other guys, and that's where I first met Tessie. She came in to kind of uh, guide us in the structure of writing and kind of putting our thoughts um, in a discipline, like really. Because sometimes our thoughts, especially in a situation like this, tend to run wild. (laughs) So Tessie showed us how to kind of like, like structure that. And so we started to kind of write essays and memoirs, and we would come down to class each week. And she would would have not only she, but the other guys would all sit around and have this critiquing process. And she called it the power of critiquing, um, and how that to be a good writer one has to be open, extremely open um, to that process. And so I learned that first that in order for me to be a good writer, I had to make myself vulnerable to other people's perspectives of my writing. Mm. Um, after that. There was some situations where um, Tessie, I'm sure you read in the book where Tessie had some issues and she was asked, she was dismissed, but she didn't stop there, and I commend her. She left here, and she still had this like strong passion to kind of showcase the humanity that she experienced on death row to the world. And so she contacted us and asked us about um, would we be interested in getting our voices out, we would we be interested in composing a book? And, of course, I was on board. I was certainly on board for that. And that's kind of how my journey started. Um, we, we submitted some pieces. Tessie went through the selection process, deciding what pieces would make the book. Um, and from there, Crimson Letters was born. It was a real thing.
0: So during this process, you had mentioned kind of this kind of monotonous existence for 16 years. What kind of arose in you when you started doing uh, the writing? How did that change your existence in there? To
1: be honest, Dr. Harris, I think I just learned the power of accountability and Mm. self-forgiveness because I had lived the bulk of my life um, kind of misdirecting, redirecting um, my misdeeds and my actions. I would put it on the lack of my father not being around or um, the our financial circumstances or just all these things that excused my behavior. Well, Death row teaches you that you have no one to ask the blame on. You have no one to excuse. Um, excuse that everything is on you and when i took a hard look at myself i realized that excluding the circumstance that brought me here i still was accountable for a lot of things in my life and writing offered me a, a chance to kind of come face to face with that and kind of make amends
0: yeah i would imagine so um the reflection aspect of it How how did your thoughts come together? Like you were saying during the time when it was more monotonous, your thoughts were running wild. And when those thoughts became uh, more organized, what did you, how did that start to change who you were as a person?
1: So a lot of my background was really like selfish. I, I never really accounted for anyone but myself. I never really had to um, um, support or protect or had to say, even I have children. And I wasn't even doing a really good, responsible job of being a parent. Like, I was, I was never, um, I never held anyone in regards other my, I was a really selfish person. But when I got to Death Row, I realized that the greatest purpose that we can have as a people um, is to put others before ourselves. And I started to see my obligation to the generation behind me, those kids who are living the same life that I live, who only put themselves first, and who are on a crash course to death row. And it made me want to take responsibility. It made me want to write not just for myself but for the other people so that I could possibly compose stories that, other people could resonate with and possibly see a path that they were on. And if I could change one life, I know it's really cliche, but it is so genuinely true that if I could change yeah. one life and it would make my time here worth, it. wow.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sensing a theme, you know, the, and I I just talked to George before you and I'm sensing a very similar theme, which is actually really wonderful about helping others and putting other people before yourself. I wanted to ask you, what was the reaction to the final product of the book once it was done? You're reading it. What did you feel when you were reading the book?
1: I feel uh, unspoken in a tremendous sense of worth. <laughs> like I mm. really feel yeah, that um, worthy. I- didn't realize how much of um, my life that was kind of denoted to a sense of unworthiness. And it it did lend itself to a lot of the poor choices that I made. Well, reading this book just gave me this powerful sense of worth, like, finally, I've done something in my life that was right. And this was something no one could take away from me. So reading a book was just this really powerful sense of
0: Parker. Wow. So you felt like this was the first time in your life you had done something you felt worthy of, that you felt this accomplishment?
1: Absolutely, because in a nutshell, death row kind of denotes a sense of unworthiness. Like, that's what the idea of death row is. Like, it beats on your... Um, mentality, your sense of worth long before any process of execution comes up. And there has been cases where some guys even look forward to the execution because they feel that even that has to be a better reality than living every day with no sense of worth and no sense of value. So that is just like, that, that is the structure of death row. It, 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 it instills a sense of unworthiness in its means.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I wonder also, um, as you're reading this book, as you're feeling that sense of worth, did it make you want to do other things? Did it build a sense of you like, what else can I accomplish?
1: It did. Um, I have other writing projects that I've been working on. Um, the writing process is like building uh a structure like you always have room for improvement, and so the more I write, the more I learn to write and the more I write, the more I learn about myself. so the book was like just this this door opener. it was like opening the door to just a floodgate of um memories and obligations and culpability and all those things so sure it set me on a path to like really stretch out my ambitions. You know, what I'm saying reach for this guy. Like I really feel like I, it's time for me. I owe it to myself to do more.
0: Yeah, I I would think so. I mean, being a part of something that I, I again I was telling Tessie that is extremely well written, and it pulls you in. The book certainly pulls you in, and um, I think everybody that's a part of it you must have worked incredibly hard to put something together that I can't say it enough. That is just extremely well-written for me. I'm a sucker for things that are well-written that pull you in um, that give you a sense of like, I have to keep turning the page uh, or swiping across. And that certainly came across in the book, like from the first sentence It's just really compelling. And so do you get a sense or do you get a chance to talk to your other co-authors about this? I'm not sure of the communication, but do you ever, like, it to kind of commiserate about it? Sure,
1: we do. Um, so the the structure of our facility, of the Deso facility, is um, there are these parts. So many Desoes across North Carolina, it's, like, really restricted. There's mm-hmm. guys are in the field 24 hours, 23 hours a day. They have, like, one-hour recreation. We have that same process here, but instead of being in our sales, we are locked away in these pods, and the sales are located on the pods. And for the majority of the day, our cell doors are open, and we just kind of mingle around, interact with one another. And so one of the guys, the co author is on the block with me. So he and I, we talk all the time about the process. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. And the, and the, And the other guys, when we had, um, we still kind of interact with other guys from different parts because there is a lot of movement here. We are like a a self-ran unit, so we leave the block to go to canteen, we leave the block to go to recreation and to the nurse station and to the cafeteria. So we see each other all the
0: time and sure we commit with one another. Now, did other prisoners read the book, and did they? Were they allowed to read the book, and was what was their reactions to it?
1: Well, I sure hope so, but unfortunately, not here because the book was banned here, and I think that hmm. the banning process is a statewide ban. So when they banned it from the prisons, it's banned from all of North Carolina prisons. I see. I did have a, I did receive um, a fan mail, I would call it. I I, I I kinda don't like using the word fan mail because I don't do good with praise but the letter was like extremely awesome. This guy was really like giving us this and so I wrote him back and he had it was a, a minister who had ordered the book for his pen title a prison. And they talked about I he even sent me this. You had sixty seconds remaining. Um, from the inmate himself and they loved it. They enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, no, I would imagine that you would probably get some get some people who connect with you about it. I mean, that, that's what pulled me in. And like when Tessie said, you know, you should read the book and I read it, I was like, man, I have to talk to these guys. Like, I have to talk to these guys, <laughs> you know, like, I want to know about your story. I, I really believe, you know, I had a lot of people contact me before this. You have I was, 30
1: seconds remaining.
0: And I was letting them know I'm going to be talking to you guys, all the authors, and what was surprising to me is nobody, there was, now. I, I expect to have maybe some pushback, but everybody that I talked to was very positive about me doing this because I think we're often not told what's really happening and what's going on. And it's best to hear directly from somebody than through other sources, you know?
1: Would you like me to call, back?
0: Yes, sir. these are and look at you look at you you look look at you tessie (laughs) it's like you raised some people you raised some people here you know
1: no i didn't i actually know his his mother Chantan's mother really well she's an incredible person so
0: strong Uh, she yeah not me (laughs) how do you think these are how do you think these are going so far they are going great, but that—but awesome. I knew they would. They always go great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I meant that like you. You raise these guys' spirits. You helped raise their spirits. You know, to think about somebody idling, for 16 years, mm-hmm. and you know, people today they can't be off their phone for more than five minutes, mm-hmm. and let their mind idle, mm-hmm. and that's incredible. It's incredible.
1: You are a very good interviewer, too. You're good at making them feel comfortable and asking questions.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Hope so. I do it a lot.
1: (laughs) Because I can tell,
0: having listened to a lot of people interview, I can tell who's good, and some people just aren't very good interviewers. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. I'm going to jump in more about this worthiness thing. I mean, that really caught me. Um, I got kind of choked me up a little bit, actually thinking about that. Cause you know, some, you have that sense of that. It's, it's tough. Yeah. You know,
1: Hi right, Chantan, can you hear us? I can. I can.
0: He's back, Chantan. Uh, yeah. well, first yeah. of all, thank you again yeah. for those yeah. questions. Yeah. Sure, sure. The, for the answers, sorry. But I wanted to get back into um, the, the concept of worthiness and the fact that you started feeling that when you were writing, when you read the book for that. Tell me a little bit about how the lack of worthiness contributed to how you were feeling before you wrote this book.
1: So a lot of my choices here reflected my behavior in the past. Um I was engaging in illegal activity. I gambled all day. Um I used I won't pacify and say um um, the commercial drugs because drugs are drugs nonetheless and so I was there was drug activity um, anything to kind of like really deflect like change the reality and make my own reality and every day I would wake up and the reality would start a new this harsh and critical uh, concept of where I was and the potential um, outcome of, of my circumstance We just thought or knew, and there just was no escaping it. And I realized that until I actually did something about the sense of worth unworthiness, that that would be my life. My my life would be defined as this person who had never really accomplished anything, who always made excuses, who never took accountability. And so it contributed in a way that made me want to like desperately grasp onto something. Um, tangible, something lasting, so that when I leave, my deeds will speak for my for myself. My deeds will define and um, my effort and my ambitions. And so it came across through the writing. Like I never really set out to um, be a published author. I never really set out to gain this sense of worthiness. I just was really desperate to have the last say
0: of who i am is there a big sense for you that your legacy is really important at this point that how you are perceived as a man as a human um as you move through your life and ultimately when you have no more life is your legacy become a very critical part of who you are
1: it it certainly is i don't really know so it's not a concept that i was really taught in the household i grew up a christian um, when I was older and I was out in the world and I had a couple of stints in prison, I came across other religions and other concepts, but then I guess it was just something like self Like It was just this insight that was gained through experience, uh, life experience, and I just realized that the life that we know and that we hold on to so desperately is so fragile and so fleeting and that we cannot avoid what's inevitable, that we all must go... That is the common thing that we all share, whether black or white, rich or poor, we all have to go someday. And for me, I saw the importance of leaving something behind. Like that is, defines our work. That is our immortality, our legacy. And so that's why I set out on this path, because it's a, a redemption. It's a chance for me to finally do something mm-hmm. right. One
0: last shot at, at, at leaving a footprint in the sand. No. Oof. wow. You guys are, you know what's so interesting, reading the book and stuff, just how you guys are so eloquent in speaking to everybody. And I could tell that a lot of work has been put into creating something special and what you guys are doing. I also wanted to know, how has your idea of family been transformed in your experience in doing this?
1: So that is really a great question. It's a tough question because even in that regard, I always just had this veil over my eyes about like the importance of family. I still feel that way about the importance of family. But I did also learn that my perspective and my importance is just mine alone. Like family doesn't, they aren't obligated to feel the same way and they aren't obligated to um kinda of exude the same sense of loyalty, um and honor. And so it has changed in a way because I am here as a product of a, a family member. And it kinda of really wedged um itself between our family dynamic. Like when I was coming up I thought that we were the greatest, closest family in the world. And then this yeah. happened. And then it was like people who weren't talking to each other or people was giving each other the side eye and so it was a really trying time for our family. And I think in the end, I just learned that um, family, I mean, we all are entitled to our perspective, and I'm entitled to feel the way I feel about family, but I don't have the right to push that onto other people, even families, that they are obligated um, to the same tenets and the same principles as I hold family to. So I still think family is... Like there's nothing like that comes to, I think family denotes this sense of honor and respect and trustworthiness um, that is just, it, it is it's so profound that it's unspoken. There's no words to express it. But I also realize that it's just my take on
0: it. You get a sense of, is there a familial sense um, on death row? I know George had just spoken to me about that his sense was that kind of the way you guys were living that it was almost like um, a, f- a sense of a family uh, and, and, and a different sense being on death row with other inmates and, and how you move together and do everything together. Do you get that same sense or no?
1: I do, I certainly do. One thing I've learned probably the most um, critical thing that I've learned that, In shared affliction, when you're going through something together, like a struggle, especially something like death row, it unites you in ways that is immeasurable. And it kind of forges a friendship. It forges a brotherhood. It forges a bond that isn't forced. So there's this idea that death row is the worst of the worst, and you would think that there's all this killing and raping and stealing. But in all of the 20 years that I've been here, I've never seen one act of theft. And fights, a fist fight, certain physical altercations are like once every five years. A lot of times they are over such tedious uh, measures that uh, it's resolved between the two um, uh, oppositions before the day is out. And so I think that kind of lends itself to us being in this fight together, like knowing there is a, a system and an entity that's greater than all of you that, intends to pick you all off one by one and when that day comes all you have for support is the man beside you it does unite you in a way yeah um like a brotherhood so sure these guys a lot of these guys here are more family to me than some of my blood relatives
0: yeah i think and that's what i was kind of getting at too is um the idea that family is more than biology or a bloodline for that and i think this is a a good example of that and you spend a lot of time with someone it can be considered or transform your idea of what what family is and what it can be and i'm getting that sense too from my conversations um, with you guys for that with it now i wanted to also um, get a sense of what does the future look like for you how do you perceive the future in your situation
1: Honestly, after 20 years on Death Row, it's hard to see beyond that. Yeah. And a lot of my, a lot of my writing, a lot of my ambitions, um, a lot of my drive has been because I feel that I may never leave Death Row. I mean, the I understand the odds. Like, so people leave Death Row. I've seen twenty guys or more leave death row, but I also know that that can be. Some people live in that world. Some people live with this false hope, like it's going to be me someday. I just don't feel that lucky. Like I've, this is not my first stint in prison, being wrongfully convicted, and that sentence was carried all the way out. I mean, I did make parole and all, but there was no, there was no. I'm a hero to swoop in and say, well, he didn't do this. and set i out of prison. So I have no reason to believe that it would happen this time. I believe that ex- innocent people have been executed. And I can only hope that it doesn't happen. But in all honesty, that hope is an iota. I guess it's really, really small.
0: Yeah. And so <clears throat> what do you hold on to every day then? Nafino, you know, when looking about a future that, and the perspective that you have, what is the, what is the daily sense of hope that you have?
1: I think that the people in this world who are entitled to know who I am the most is my mom and my children. And that's why I write with a sense of honesty and vulnerability, because they deserve to know the kind of man I was. And that's what I hold on to. My, I, I, This is my way of fighting. Writing is my way of fighting. So it's not like I am giving in, but I write with a sense of um, passion and a sense of worth and a sense of honesty because I write for my mom and I write for my children. I just met one of my granddaughters the other day. She's 13 years old and I met her for the first time. And oh. it was this amazing experience, but I couldn't shake the shame of meeting her so unconventionally. Um, no grandfather should really meet his granddaughter for the first time by phone, over the phone by way of death row. And so since then, I've just, I've called her all the time. Only, we, I've only met her two weeks, and I, I've called her so much. So <laughs> that's what that's what drives me. It's just this sense of family.
0: It sounds also like you're being driven by the fact that you want, to, you want people to understand this narrative about you that you are changing, you have changed, and this sense of honor, honor and worth is very important to you to get across to other people.
1: I mean, it, it is because, I mean, at the end of the day, that's all we have. Like, when we leave, what else can we leave behind, but um, uh am outstanding on, uh, first of all, we have no say on how people remember us. but. The people have no say in how we strive to be remembered, and so I had to learn that that I didn't I didn't have to continue living this expectation and being this person for this person or that person because that was the bulk of my life, and it it really um, commanded a lot of the decisions that I made. I wanted to be, in this setting, I would be this person. In that setting, I, I would do this, I
0: would say Ah, uh, yeah.
1: Death Row, scrip- Death Row scripts you of all that. It just really takes all that away. And on Death Row, all you have is that one-on-one time with yourself, that look in the mirror, and everything else just goes away. And It's just this, this uh, sense of uh, culpability and accountability. And so then I look back, and I just realized that I had hurt a lot of people in my life. I owe it to them. You have 60 seconds remaining. I owe it to them to put that into words. I think if, there's a, if there is a chance of me grasping a sense of honor and a sense of worth, it's owning up to who I am and what I've done.
0: Yeah. I got to tell you, Chanton, um, I really appreciate your time. I know our time is limited here, but sure. thank you for giving me the time and um, for explaining You know your passion for writing. And about worth.
1: we have thirty your, seconds remaining.
0: And thank you for talking about legacy. Um, it was really um, wonderful to spend some time with you. I love chatting with people and uh, hearing your story. Um, I think it's a very positive experience. Sure,
1: and thank you, Dr. Parker, for the support. Um, and of course, we're on the cusp of so let's do it
0: together. You got people it. Like yourself. Thank you so yeah, much. Good Yes. Yes. So let me ask you something. How do you get your news? Because I know you want to stay informed with what's going on here in the world. There's so much going on on a regular basis. And it's something that's been a problem for me personally. And I've been searching and searching and searching and finally I found a news source that I think all of my listeners are going to love. It's called the donut or the dose of news useful today. The founder and CEO, Peter Nowak, is a good friend of mine, and when he turned me on to it, I was just blown away. Finally, a daily news source that delivers succinct and factual news about all the world's occurrences, and it's an easy access to finding things that you just want to get information about. And it also serves up a lot of positive news stories that you won't hear anywhere else. It's your daily reminder that there is good in the world, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. So, get the donut. Stay informed. It's 100% free. You can unsubscribe anytime. Visit thedonut.co or text DONUT to 66866 to sign up today.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.